I got, ooh, that was kind of loud. I got a question. Does anybody have a cough drop? Right I might. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Thank you. Almost hit Brad. Right smack dab in the back of the head. Plus, I love it. Let me get this right here so we get a little bit more volume so Paul can hear. <laughs> I uh, I've got some notes here. I, you know, I'm probably not going to get through most of this stuff. But I want to talk about, and I don't want to be disrespectful when I say this, I want to talk about the blue-collar worker of the Trinity. And when I say that, I'm not being blasphemous. But when I speak about the Holy Spirit, we've got one God revealed and three eternal, distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have a, a person of God or a person of the Trinity that is responsible for immediately applying the work of redemption to our lives and then the ongoing work of sanctification and growth. And so, you know, we need to understand that. You know, we talk about the decree of the Father. The Father draws people to Himself in salvation. And then the Son is responsible for atoning and doing stuff, as I've heard Jeff say before, uh, fulfilling prophecy, uh, making it known, what he is all about, what he's come to do, and, and dying for his people, the elect of God. And then the Spirit comes and draws, convicts us in, and, and, and brings us to himself, and encourages us in grace, and also causes us to be a part of a people that we would otherwise have nothing to do with. Um, it's because of the Spirit of God, ultimately, that, that we're here, and we are able to laugh, uh, throw cough drops at each other, have near misses, and you know I'm joking about this a little bit, but it is true. The Spirit of God produces this amazing change within us. What I want to do, let's go to Hebrews eight. I want to get right into the Bible, <coughs> right into the discussion about the the new covenant. And there's not an immediate mention of the Spirit here in this famous text. I'm sure most of you who know anything about NCT know where I'm going with this. This may have even already been read, maybe last night. But I just want to read verses 6 through 13 and then talk about some of the differences in the way the Spirit worked in the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant era and move forward to focus on the difference in the New Covenant, how the Spirit works, and what it's doing now, what the Spirit is doing now. Let's look at verse 6. It says, But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Of course, taking a prophecy from the book of Jeremiah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. Not a newer administration of the one same covenant of grace. That's not what the text says here. It says it's not like the Mosaic covenant. On the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's very clearly telling you this is talking about the Mosaic covenant. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel 
after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, this covenantal language of an intimate relationship with God. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete, but whatever's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, you can very clearly see there that the old covenant did not produce, by virtue of the nature of the covenant, combined with the nature of the people to whom it was given, the most of them, it did not produce a redeemed people of God. Whereas when the new covenant comes, everybody that's in that new covenant knows the Lord. You don't have to go up to them and send a prophet to them and say, Sister, you need to know the Lord. You're a covenant child. You need to know Yahweh. No, everybody in the new covenant knows the Lord. And I'm not picking on them, but there are many denominations and or churches that they just don't get this basic truth. And as a result of that, you have theological implications that kind of flow out from that that create a lot of confusion, such as having this person that's a covenant child in the, that's in this external aspect of the covenant but is not a part of the internal aspect of the covenant. I'm like, where does the Bible talk about this? Well, it doesn't. You have that kind of thing in the old covenant, but in the new covenant, that's not the way it works. Everybody in the new covenant knows the Lord. Now, the old covenant, the Spirit of God did do the work of regeneration, saving, filling, as it, as it were, meaning controlling. That's the way I take filling, especially in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But especially empowering for a particular skill, um, a work or a purpose, something like that. You'll see places in the old covenant where the Spirit of God would come on a person for a period of time and then leave. And another thing is that you got to understand is, is that when the Spirit of God came upon some people in the Old Covenant era, some of these people had their heart changed, and as far as we can tell, they were not elect believers. And I think the classic example here is King Saul. King Saul was God's chosen king. We don't really have time to get into the, the specific chapters. You look in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9 verses 15 and 16, it clearly says God chose, Yahweh chose him to be their king. And it says in 1 Samuel 10, 9, and I took this from the NASB, most of your other translations will say something similar, that he had his heart changed by the Spirit. He prophesied in that same chapter, verses 10 and following, yet he was an utter failure as a king. And the text, as far as I know, doesn't explicitly state this, but he, you know, I, I don't think the guy was saved. I don't have any indication to think he knew God or was an elect person. But he had his heart changed in some sense. We look at Balaam. Uh, Balaam is a, a classic example of a false, obvious pagan false prophet. It says in Numbers 24-2 that he had the Spirit of God come upon him to prophesy God's truth, Yahweh's truth, couldn't speak against the nation of Israel. Balak hired him to do that. He was a pagan king. Hired Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. And Balaam said, I can't do it. 
I can only speak that truth which Yahweh has put in my mouth. It says in uh, Numbers 24.3 that his eye was opened by Yahweh. And in that same chapter, in verse 17, he gives us that famous scepter of Judah prophecy. So he prophesies the Spirit of God comes upon him to do that, to equip him, to empower him to do that. His eye or his eyes are opened by God. That's the language that's used there. And he even issues a true messianic prophecy that, that obviously came true in Jesus as the ultimate scepter of Judah. But he was lost. So that's very interesting. I just want to point that out. That's a huge difference from what we find in the New Covenant. We look in places like um, Exodus 35, and I know I've heard Jeff talk about this several times. Pretty funny how he puts it. Where you see uh, Bezalel and Aholiab engaging in holy hammering and sanctified sowing. And the Spirit of God comes on them and gives them the ability to engage in these material abilities and gifts to build the tabernacle, but yet we, you know, that, that doesn't seem to be necessarily associated with both saving faith, regenerate a truly regenerated heart as we understand it in the born again experience from the new covenant, like John 3 5 type stuff. You can't enter the kingdom, you can't see or perceive the kingdom of God unless you're born again, unless you're born of the Spirit. That's not the type of thing we're seeing here. We're seeing the Spirit of Yahweh coming on people to control them, to empower them to do a particular duty, task, or etc. Now, I hope I'll see these old guys in heaven. Maybe I will. I hope so. We also see in places like 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 23 that we not only have, as we did in Exodus, holy hammering, sanctified sowing, but the Spirit of God also empowered uh, the kings of Israel, some of them, to do righteous ruling. And I, I think that it's interesting when you look in places like 1 Samuel 16 with Saul. It says that the Spirit of God leaves him, right? And God then, Yahweh then sends an evil spirit to him, a demon, to afflict him, to torment him mentally, put him in mental anguish because he was disobedient. But he had, the Bible says elsewhere he was God's chosen one as, in some sense. So we've got some strange stuff going on in the Bible. And, and I'm, not try, I'm not trying to say I can work all this out uh, because that's definitely below my pay grade. I mean, I work a secular job like most of you do too. But I have spent some time looking at this and thinking about it. And I wanted to point this out because when we look into the new covenant, we just don't see stuff like this. We look in the Old Covenant, we do see examples of the Spirit of God coming upon unregenerate people to empower them for a task. Sometimes these unregenerate people were considered God's covenant children in some sense, similar to the way that covenant theology Presbyterians view baptized babies today. They might be regenerate by the time they've been able to hear the gospel and respond to it, but they we really don't know until we have that time of, of what's basically a Protestant form of confirmation, where they can give verbal assent or testimony to this. And you know, that's when they're supposed to be evidently bearing fruits and things like that. So you you kind of you have this idea in the old covenant 
And in some Protestant denominations today, it's, this is carried over, and this is where they get their marching orders from, of having possibly unregenerate people in the covenant, at least externally, but yet not really knowing Yahweh. And this is where you get the prophets in the old covenant saying, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. You know, you need to know, you God's people need to know God. We don't say that stuff in the new covenant. And so we see in Hebrews 8 that we don't have to do that anymore because the Spirit of God's making a people that are incurable God lovers. They are transformed, right? Um, and then we already saw that the Spirit would leave a disobedient person. So that, there are some similarities. And I just want to briefly talk about those. But any of you folks that want these notes, you are more than welcome to have them. Just let me know and I'll email them to you. Regenerate people of all ages have enjoyed the work of the Spirit in the following ways. Obviously, regeneration. Um, I do believe that people under the old covenant era were really all the way from Adam on up. Whoever really knew God in, inwardly had to have a regenerate heart. They were justified. Romans 4 very clearly says that. Abraham was justified by faith alone. <clears throat> apart from his circumcision, apart from anything else he did, he was declared righteous in God's sight because he believed in the promises that Yahweh gave him at that time. And that was credited unto him. Or he was credited as righteous in God's sight by virtue of his faith in Yahweh's promise. They had obviously forgiveness of sins. We see that in Hebrews 9. And uh, uh, interestingly, the locus classicus, Romans 3, on justification. They were saved on credit based upon what Jesus would do. So Jesus' work on the cross is applied to them retroactively. And they are justified by virtue of what Jesus would do for them. They um, had the possession of the Holy Spirit in some way, uh, though that way uh, was very different at times in the Old Testament era and under the Old Covenant. I make a distinction, obviously, between the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, Exodus 19 forward, and then previous to that, that Old Testament era where we just had oral law, people following Yahweh based on some oral law. They also had um, God's guaranteed blessings. Usually it was gold, guns, and babies. Thank you for laughing. They, um, that, you know, that was mostly material stuff, cattle, sheep, land. But there was obviously spiritual blessings included with that, and I've already mentioned some of those. Um, so the emphasis under the Old Covenant was material, physical blessings versus where now, let me get close to the microphone, sorry, Paul, whereas now in the New Covenant, I am kind of a walker. It's more of a spiritual emphasis. God can bless us now under the, the new covenant. Some of you are blessed materially in many ways, much more. And uh, feel free. Tithes and offerings. Feel free. <laughs> Bring it. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I don't need your money. Um, but it's just important to point some of this stuff out. How about let's talk about some of the differences on the ground. Okay? The Old Covenant people of God, air quotes, were primarily an unregenerate mass of people that were externally in covenant with God through circumcision and genetics, meaning they were the fiscal seed of Abraham, but the majority of them, the, the large majority of them were not internally in covenant with God through regeneration. They did not have a new heart. 
Only the elect in Israel were true, those that were saved, were truly children of God. The rest were hardened. We see that in Romans chapter 9, verse 8. We see that in Romans 11, verse 7. The majority of them were hardened. And then we also see this in Deuteronomy 29, 4. Very interesting passage. I want to look there just for a minute. This is one of those passages that get, get people's pants in a wad. We see in Deuteronomy 29.4, you know, Moses basically says, you guys have seen all this amazing stuff that Yahweh has done. You've seen these great signs and wonders. He's provided for you in the midst of trials. But, verse 4, yet to this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. That is the language of unregenerate people. That's a description of what a God-hater looks like. You don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. That's why Jesus constantly says, He kind of repeats this in the New Covenant era when He's announcing that, and even, of course, even on in Revelation, He who has eyes to see and ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. If you don't have that, you're not going to listen to what God tells you. You've got to be one of His sheep. When we look back at that, you know, God says, look, God hasn't given you that this yet. And it's interesting because it says um, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 29, it says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. So we see that God does not grant always what He Himself desires in some sense. Now put that in your logical pipe and smoke it. That just... <laughs> That was, um, the first one was Deuteronomy 29.4, and the other one was 5.29. Deuteronomy 5.29. We see similar things carried on for us in the New Covenant. You know, we see things like God creates people for destruction, the reprobate, doctrine of reprobation. But yet, the Scripture says uh, in Acts 17, verse 30, God commands all men everywhere to repent, because He's fixed a day in which He's going to judge the world in righteousness through the man that He's appointed, Jesus. And He's given proof to everybody by raising Him from the dead. Okay, so you see things like that. You're like, well, on the one hand, there's a sense in which God does not want to save some or a lot, and just a few, comparatively speaking. And there's another sense in which He wants all, he wants all people everywhere to repent. It's the same type of thing. What do you do with that? Well, you just recognize that God's not like you. God is very different. And we see some of this type of stuff in the Old Covenant. You would think if people were called the people of God that they would have regenerate hearts, but not so with the Old Covenant. New Covenant, yes. Old Covenant, no. Large majority of them were lost. They fell in the desert. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says most of them perish. And that first generation didn't enter the promised land because of that. Very interesting. But... God did give some of them regenerate hearts. We see in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, this is kind of how to get a new heart in the Old Testament era, the Old Covenant era. It says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed or your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. That didn't happen to most of them. Most of them, the covenant curses came down upon their heads. 
and we've got this cycle of what some apparent faithfulness for a little while, a little flash in the pan, and then apostasy, bad kings, judgment comes through some wicked army that God raises up and uses as a hammer to beat them up with, and he judges the hammer for what he wielded it to do. Another interesting thing. But we believe it because it's in the Scriptures. And then it just happens over and over again until they get thrown into exile, they come back into the land, and then we have Jesus you know, over about a 1,500-year period. Um, and that's kind of the, the Old Testament in a nutshell. So he did give it to some of them. But when we look at the picture, most of them didn't have it. They were unregenerate covenant children. Very weird way. It's hard for me to say that. And I, I don't, you know, if you're being a pastor in the New Covenant, you just don't talk like that. But like I said, in Hebrews 8, when we looked at Hebrews chapter 8, what do you end up with? You end up with the truth that the New Covenant would actually produce a real people of God. Real people of God. Okay? The new covenant was to be the covenant known for the new heart and the covenant of the Spirit. Everyone in the new covenant would be a regenerate child of God and have the guarantee of the forgiveness of sins. This is why you know, anybody here that holds the NCT is by default going to be Baptistic. That's kind of where the early Baptists get their idea from. Right? But we don't, we don't give people baptism who have not at least professed faith in Jesus. Whereas the, the sign of the covenant under the old covenant, or the Abraham's covenant, we would give them circumcision. Everyone in this new covenant not only was regenerate, had the new heart, be a true child of God, but would have a guarantee for the forgiveness of sins. I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Far as the east is from the west, to use that old covenant language from the book of Psalms. How is that going to happen? Well, it's going to be accomplished by the work of the Spirit, the blue-collar worker of the Trinity. I like to quote Hebrews 10.14. I think it sums all of this up well. It says, for by one offering, that's Jesus' work on the cross, He has perfected for all time. Meaning that Jesus' death on the cross actually accomplished forgiveness for those in that covenant. Anybody that's part of the new covenant, and, and even saints in the old covenant, the elect children, had their sins forgiven. by ver They were declared righteous, perfect in God's sight, clean spiritual bank account, not by virtue of anything they've done, but they are credited righteous before God by virtue of Jesus' work on the cross. Okay? So justification, to modify the Westminster Shorter Catechism definition, it's an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and are granted all the rights and privileges of the sons of God or the children of God based on the perfect propitiatory work of Christ on the cross, which is received by faith alone. We're declared righteous on, by virtue of faith alone. By virtue of Jesus' work on the cross. And that constant work, whereas Hebrews 10.14 goes on to say, those who are being sanctified, we get a new heart, and we get, well, we get forgiveness, and then we get a new heart. We get forgiven by Jesus, 
faith alone, and then we get the work of the Spirit constantly trying to draw us together in relationship with the Trinity and with each other. Okay? That's what the Spirit does. And if anybody's born of the Spirit in the New Covenant, that's what happens. That you are an incurable God lover. You will... Everybody in here is very different. We have very different desires and likes. I am basically a gun-toting pacifist. Put the, again, another put-in-your-pipe-and-smoke type thing. I don't think Jeff really has much interest in, like, firearms. He likes football and basketball and stuff. And I'm, a, I'm around that stuff so much, working as an athletic trainer in sports medicine, I'm just kind of sick of it. I don't want to go home and watch a basketball game on ESPN. But we can sit and have the sweetest fellowship. I mean, I'm serious. We have this. Why? Well, it's because the Spirit of God is pulling us together, drawing us together, and gives us a common love for Jesus that can't be explained naturalistically. It's a supernatural work that makes us want to come here and spend money and burn gas and talk to this brother about his church situation and talk to you and talk to you and worship together and love Jesus together and pray openly together and care for one another. The Spirit is always doing that work, drawing us together. Now, when the Spirit came in the New Covenant on the day of Pentecost, we have quantitative and qualitative differences. Quantitative and qualitative. Well, quantitatively, John 6, or excuse me, John 16, says when the Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. But what we tend to neglect is the word world. He will convict the cosmos, or the Jews and Gentiles, not primarily just Jews anymore, not just a bunch of Hebrew people, and, and really just a handful that he actually regenerated, just a smidgen, just a stump, just a remnant. But in the New Covenant era, quantitatively, comparatively speaking to the Old Covenant, we had a whole boatload of people that came into the, the New Covenant. Initially Jews, and then God started adding all these Gentiles to the church, and now primarily... We have a church, a people of God now, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, that is primarily a bunch of physical Gentiles. Not Most of us are not physical descendants of Abraham. So that's the quantitative difference. He convicted the world. Qualitatively, we look at John 14, and it says that when, when, he, when he left... He would be glorified and the Spirit would come as our parakletos, as our comforter, to come alongside of us and not only dwell with us, but dwell in us. And I don't think that the, that, that the Holy Spirit's like a big divine hypodermic needle that's going to come up to you and hit you in the shoulder and the rear end and fill you up like he's a liquid. He's some immaterial <laughs> liquid. I think this, I mean, how does that happen? How do you take immaterial stuff and fill up a fit? It doesn't make any sense. It's like filling this up with three pounds or three ounces of the law of non-contradiction. Good luck with that. It's a category fallacy. So we have an immaterial person that is coming and controlling our minds and our hearts. Right? Our rational faculties as well as our emotional faculties. Yes, sir? Five minutes. Five minutes, thank you. He'll permanently and internally be present with, control, gift, teach, and empower his elect people, the church. Whereas under the old covenant, not so much. Comes and goes, comes and goes. That's why David prayed 
in Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Well, New Covenant, you, can't, you don't have to pray that. The hound of heaven's always going to be on top of you. And if you try to go off and do your own thing, follow your flesh, he's going to beat you to pieces. That's the old, you know, the kind of a southern way of saying he's going to come after you. He's going to discipline you because he loves you. He loves you. I got a couple more things here I want to say. Um, New Covenant, real people of God, permanently gifted. 1 Peter chapter 4, two primary categories of gifting. Serving gifts and speaking gifts. And when you look in like places like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where some of those things are listed, or Romans chapter 12, that's kind of what you see. You see these like administrations, helps, um, other areas... Serve these serving gifts, and then you see gifts of speaking, gifts of evangelism, gifts of teaching, uh, leadership, things like that. So it seems that, that the Spirit of God has, has permanently gifted the new covenant people of God with these two categories of gifting. And you know, I, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but that's okay. We're here, we love each other. Any questions? Any questions? When I normally teach, I'm not rambling on like this for 30 minutes. I normally will teach 5, 10 minutes and then, you know, do like you guys do. Anybody got any questions? It's funny when you do it in a big, huge church, everybody's like, are you serious? You really want to stay out there? I don't want you to ask a question. So, anybody got any questions? I'm not an expert on this. this there's some complicated stuff, especially about the differences and how the, how the new is, is supposedly different than the old. You know, if, if they had the, all of these things in the old covenant, these blessings through the Spirit in the old covenant, how is that really different? How did, you know, and those, are, those can be some difficult things to deal with, but there is a difference. And I've tried to point a few of those out in a brief period of time. I have a question. Yes, sir. Um, like, we see a lot of pretty cool stuff that happened in the early church. Does the Holy Spirit work differently now than it did back then? Yeah, good question. Uh, a lot of debate about that. My own personal view is I am a open but extremely cautious continuationist. Um, do I expect people in here when we start singing again sometime? Do I expect y'all to? No. I, I do not believe. My own view, on, like say for instance, sign gifts. I think that like for tongues, I think that God sovereignly dumped on that person an ability to speak Spanish or whatever they were speaking back. So, yes, I do think it was different, and here's how. The best analogy I've heard has come from some some dude at New Covenant Bible Fellowship. It's a church. You guys might have heard of that in Tempe, Arizona. It's still located there. Gilbert. Gilbert. So back when it was in Tempe, I heard a really good analogy of some guy. Cool, you ought to listen to that those podcasts. They're pretty good. But he said this. He said when 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 a mall opens up, when the mall first opens... There's the carnival ride outside. They're giving away free hot dogs and popcorn and Slurpees and all this other stuff. But two weeks after the opening of that mall, you don't find that stuff going on anymore. That might happen every once in a while. But for the most part, the mall's already open. Things are working. The department stores are open. Just go in and do your thing. That's kind of the way that I personally view what's happening at Pentecost and kind of shortly thereafter. You have these amazing sign gifts that are occurring. And very unusual. And you really only see about three or four times in the entire history of redemption where you have a lot of miracles like that taking place. What appears to be a lot of miracles taking place at one time. Creation. um, 
the, the beginning of the nation of Israel, you know, pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night, that type of thing. Elijah and Elisha. And then we got a lot of, of you know, pretty much quiet, quietness until we get to the time of Jesus. And, of course, then at the end, um, they're, you know, depending on what view of eschatology you take. But, yes, I do think that there was, there, there was something different going on initially in that early church. And I think you can see this in the New Testament itself. When you look on in, say, for instance, uh, I can't remember if it's First or Second Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy to take, some, uh, take a little bit of wine for his stomach's sake and his frequent infirmities. He says, I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Well, why didn't you heal him? You know, the dude that fell out of the window, you just laid on top of him and he got up. You know, because Dustin Seegers was speaking too long. No, no. No, Paul was preaching, teaching, teaching. Fell out of the window, Paul lays on top. You don't see Paul laying on top of Trophimus. So it does seem that there's, there's these kind of crazy things going on initially. And when I say crazy, again, I'm not being blasphemous. That's just the way I talk. But it does seem that these really interesting things are happening very early to testify to the truth that, yes, Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. Out of all the other would-be claimants in the first century ancient world, God is putting His sign and seal and approval on not only the, the message the historical claims of Christ, but then that apostolic message being carried out and preached among the masses. God is putting His stamp on that through these signs and wonders. That's kind of my take on it. Is that kind of yeah. scratching the itch? Yeah. All right. we got to quit. All right, I appreciate it. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You for Your love and Your grace. I pray, God, Your Spirit would indeed fill us, control our minds, we know that we're already dwelt. We cannot flee from your presence, as Psalm 139 says, and that's true now. We're thankful that we really cannot pray, do not take your Holy Spirit from us. And if we're really one of yours, it's going to be with us forever. And I'm just thankful, Father, that that is indeed the case. Thank you for your Son who atones for us, who declares us righteous in your sight, by vir- or your, will you declare us that way by virtue of his work. And we thank you that you can fill us now, and I pray you would do that. Continue to control our minds. Let not the world, the flesh, and the devil get in the way. Help us be submissive and loving, and let us look to you for joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. We'll take a break. Start back at 8, not 8, 1045. Okay.